We read from the Holy Scriptures this evening from the Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 4. Hebrews, chapter 4. As I mentioned this morning, this chapter concerns rest, and we are exhorted to labor to enter into the rest which God provides his people. And we are reminded that there remaineth yet a rest to the people of God, that eternal rest. But our text is found in verses 15 and 16, the concluding verses of the chapter. We hear the word of God in Hebrews chapter 4. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time as it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus, and that's really Joshua, had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither as there is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Thus far we read from God's holy word, as I said, our text this evening is found in this chapter from the Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 14 here in the previous context reveals to us that we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens you recall that in the Jewish tabernacle, the high priest passed 
from the altar that was outside through the holy place and so stepped behind the veil of the holy of holies. So our great high priest in an infinitely more exalted manner has proceeded through the very heavens into the very presence of the living God. This great high priest is none other, of course, than Jesus, the Son of God in our flesh. He is the great high priest. He has been exalted even at the right hand of God in highest glory. He has been given all power and authority. As the angel announced to the Virgin Mary in Luke 1, verses 32 and 33, he shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Since we have this great high priest, we are admonished to hold fast our profession. And the profession that is referred to can be nothing else than the truth of Christ, nothing else than that precious gospel of Christ, him crucified and risen. The truth that Jesus, the Son of God, is our great high priest, and as such that he has brought the perfect sacrifice for all our sins. We are exhorted to cling tenaciously to this confession. We are to maintain it with all the power that we possess. That's much easier said than done. For reality is that we face many temptations as we strive to hold fast our profession. In our walk here as strangers and pilgrims, the temptations are many and great. Young and old alike, we face them. We're tempted on every side to deny our profession, to compromise it, to cast it away, to let it slip, to hold fast unto the lie rather than the truth. Of ourselves, we can never stand in the face of temptation. We're never able to conquer temptations alone. Of ourselves, we can never hold fast our profession in the face of such a barrage of temptations hurled at us by that great tempter, Satan. He goes about, we are warned, as a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. As we stand alone, according to our flesh, that broad way of sin is yet so attractive and appealing. Beloved, we need grace and mercy to stand, to hold fast our profession. So we are exhorted to come to the throne of grace. And we take that as our theme this evening, coming to the throne of grace. And we notice, first of all, the meaning, secondly, the purpose, and finally, the encouragement. Our text speaks of coming unto the throne Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. The idea of a throne in the Bible is such a familiar figure that we often forget that it can be used as a figure of speech. And as a figure of speech in Scripture, the word throne is used for one who holds dominion or exercises authority. A throne is the symbol of royal sovereignty and majesty and of supreme power of judgment. 
And so here in our text, the throne signifies God in his absolute sovereignty and power, God in his perfect righteousness and holiness, God in his glorious beauty and majesty. The triune God is the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. He sitteth in the heavens as the almighty sovereign God. He laughs at the foolish rebellion of earthly kings and rulers who would attempt to dethrone him. The throne, the throne of God is so prominent in Scripture. Call your attention, for example, in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation 7 from verse 9 through 12 in the vision of the apostle given the apostle John, how often reference is made to the throne. Revelation 7, beginning at verse 9. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. The throne. God in all his sovereign power and might and dominion. We are to come to the throne of grace. As you know, grace has various connotations in Scripture. Fundamentally, the word grace refers to the beauty of God's infinite perfections, the beauty of his virtues, his attributes, Its basic notion is that of gracefulness, pleasantness, and attractiveness. So that we read, for example, in Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold, notice, the beauty of the Lord. That's the grace of the Lord and to inquire of his temple. In close connection with this basic idea of grace, the word can be used to denote an attitude of gracefulness, a graceful disposition, a friendly inclination of the heart, an attitude of favor. And from this meaning, it's easy to see that grace can be used to refer to undeserved or forfeited favor. In this sense, the free, the undeserved, the gratuitous character of grace is emphasized. And grace can also refer to the power of God, which saves and delivers the sinner from sin and death and hell. And finally, the word grace can have the meaning of thanks, where we read in Romans 6, verse 17, but God be thanked. Literally, we read, but grace be to God. Now, here in our text, grace refers clearly to the power of God, which saves and delivers us from the bondage of sin and corruption, which makes us pleasant and pleasing in the sight of God. Grace here is the power of God which upholds us and sustains us in the midst of our temptations. Grace is that power which enables us to hold fast our profession 
and implies that all the majesty and power and glory and judgment and rule of God are motivated by his eternal favor for his own. And so grace to deliver us from our temptations, to give us the victory over our temptations, is to be found only at the throne. It is a gracious throne, a throne characterized by grace. So the throne of grace refers to God himself as our sovereign friend and covenant God who by his grace delivers us and sustains us with all his elect people. Now our text exhorts us to come unto the throne of grace. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. From the Old Testament perspective, the word come here refers to the priestly approach to God in service and worship. So that we read, for example, in Deuteronomy 21, verse 5, and the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, come near. For them the Lord thy God hath chosen to minister unto sin and to bless in the name of the Lord, and by their word shall every controversy and every stroke be tried. In the New Testament, this word in Scripture has become somewhat of a technical term, really, for divine worship. We have it often in the epistle to the Hebrews. For example, in Hebrews 10, verse 22, let us draw near, or come near, with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so more specifically, that we come unto the throne of grace means that we worship our God. As we noted this morning, that's fundamental. That's at the very basis of the fourth commandment, we would worship God on the Lord's day in the communion of saints. We would be faithful, diligent in seeking the means of grace, faithful preaching of the gospel, the proper administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ. It means, too, that we are to seek the Lord through prayer, for all true prayer is an act of worship in which the soul of the believer bows humbly before the presence of our sovereign God. But we must remember that this is not just referring to worship and acts of worship in the narrower sense, but that we come to the throne of grace means that we would ever enter into fellowship of our God. It means that we come with our whole being to adore God, to taste of his grace and mercy. We would be consecrated unto him. It means that we would stay and abide in his presence, that we would live in that consciousness that he is with us. It implies that we are conscious of our need for him, specifically for his grace and mercy. It implies that we long for his covenant fellowship and that we would appropriate unto ourselves his promises so that we know that they are for us. And so our text emphasizes that we must come with confidence. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. Literally, the idea is that we come with freedom in speaking, with free and fearless confidence, with bold assurance. We have that idea 
in Ephesians 6, verse 19, where the apostle has been exhorting the Ephesians with regard to putting on the armor of God and specifically now to prayer. And he beseeches them to pray, and for me that utterance may be given unto me that I may, notice, open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Now that we are to come boldly certainly cannot refer to a boldness or confidence that's characterized by carnality or by a lack of respect, awe, and reverence. And yet, sad to say, we often find that today, that worship and prayer are very, we might say, casual, almost frivolous. That is not the boldness meant here. Neither is this boldness a proud or haughty confidence. We are not to become, come before God with the attitude of the Pharisee in the parable of the Lord Jesus, the parable in which the Pharisee thanked God that he was not as other sinful men or even as that poor publican in the corner. Oh, no. Neither ought we come with an attitude of entitlement. That's the spirit of the day in which we're living. Many show that attitude of entitlement. God forbid that we would come with that attitude as if God owes us anything. Positively, the idea is that we come with a boldness or confidence that is rooted in faith. In faith. We are called to come to the throne with an attitude of confidence that our Heavenly Father will grant us our petitions. As Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 tells us, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We must come to the throne with a boldness that is rooted in the faith which unites us to our great high priest, Jesus Christ. We are able to approach boldly because our high priest is there. He is our advocate. He is our intercessor with the Father because our high priest is in the sanctuary wherein this throne is established. We can come boldly with confidence that we shall be received. Our text tells us that we come with the purpose of obtaining mercy and finding grace. First of all, we approach the throne of grace with the purpose of obtaining mercy. We are to lay hold upon or receive mercy. Scripture often speaks of God's mercy Oh, how wonderful is the mercy of God. Think of Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, intimately connected to his love, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace, ye are saved. In the absolute sense, 
God's mercy is his virtue which considers his own goodness from the viewpoint that he is the infinitely perfect and blessed God. Mercy is the attribute according to which God loves himself as the highest good and the most blessed God. But in relation to his people, God's mercy is his virtue according to which he wills and desires to make us share in his own divine blessedness. God's mercy is his desire to deliver his child from suffering and distress. Mercy delivers us from all misery and fills us with life and joy and peace. Because of his mercy, God is moved by inner love and compassion to save us, to uphold us, who are faced with manifold temptations. And secondly, we approach the throne of grace with the purpose of finding grace. And the word find here means literally to find a thing that's sought. We are looking for grace, and we are to find grace which will save us and deliver us from the bondage of sin, from its cruel dominion that will uphold us even in the midst of countless temptations. Let's find grace, that power which bestows upon us all spiritual blessings, all the gifts of grace. Faith, love, hope, patience, wisdom, and all the rest. As people of God in the midst of the world, we know that we are dependent upon God's grace if we are to stand. We are saved by grace. We are also preserved, upheld by grace from day to day. And so we see God's grace coming unto the throne of grace, for there alone is grace to be found. But why? Why are we exhorted to come to the throne of grace? Is this calling really necessary? Do we, after all, really need grace and mercy? Now, don't we seem oft times to get along pretty well on our own, so to speak, without coming to the throne? We know better than that. But our text emphasizes that we need mercy and grace to help in time of need. Literally, we read, for timely help. And the idea is that we obtain mercy and find grace with a view to our time of need in which we require help, assistance. The word help here means literally to run to the cry of those in danger, to help succor, bring aid, and the phrase in time of need is really, in the Greek, one word which refers to the proper time. Something that is timely or opportune. We must understand at the outset that this is not promoting what we might term a foxhole theology. You know, the soldier prays in the foxhole when he's in danger of enemy fire. The idea is not that, that we'd only come to God, come to the throne when we find ourselves in a jam, when we're desperate. That's not the idea. Nevertheless, the text indicates that mercy and grace are necessary. It's absolutely essential that we come 
to the throne of grace. This isn't merely a nice option that's open to the child of God. This isn't something like a a first aid kit that we can keep stowed in the trunk of our vehicle in case there's a need for it. The question is, when is this time of need? And in general, of course, we need mercy and grace constantly. We are always in the proper time of need. Not for a moment can we stand apart from God's mercy and grace. We are, from this perspective, completely dependent upon him. And so we must constantly be coming to God's gracious throne in all our life, in every sphere and activity of life, with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, we must draw near the throne of grace. That must be our life. We must live in that consciousness of our dependence. And so we must live lives of prayer and consecration to God, lives of worship. How easily we take prayer for granted. How easily we neglect this great blessing. But we must always remember that we draw near to the throne of grace, not for help with regard to carnal things. Again, prayer in our modern times can become very carnal, casual. Not that, but always with a view to entering into the rest. The rest, the covenant fellowship and communion with our God. And with regard to holding fast our profession, the glorious truth of our exalted high priest, Jesus Christ. Well, it's certainly true that sometimes we feel the need of coming to the throne of grace much more strongly than at other times, but the point is the need is always there. And so we emphasize again the need to be here each Lord's Day again both services, if at all possible. We need our daily devotions, our family, times of prayer and devotion. We need to live lives of prayer. must see, however, that our text emphasizes that the need is especially in times of temptation, Now, temptations always have the character of presenting the way of sin and apostasy as being preferable to the way of obedience and faithfulness. Temptations have their origin in Satan, always. Satan tempts. And the temptation is always to leave the straight and narrow way and to cease holding fast our profession and to walk down that broad way of rebellion and disobedience as pilgrims and strangers, young and old alike, we face many temptations in striving to hold fast our profession. That's true of us as young people and young adults. Temptations to conform to go along with the crowd, temptations to compromise our biblical convictions. That's true even for us as children. Temptations. Temptations to be mean to someone else, perhaps to exclude them. Temptations to disobey, to lie to cheat. 
as men and women, we're tempted day in, day out, at home, at work, on the street. Temptations, a struggle, the battle, the battle of faith. And Satan points out that if we hold fast our profession, we're going to face hardships, perhaps mockery, suffering, maybe even death one day. And we can see it, the handwriting's on the wall, so to speak, the times in which we live. There's less and less tolerance for those who would strive to maintain their Christian convictions or, to use the language of our text, who would hold fast their profession. We cannot possibly stand and gain the victory over our temptations in our own strength. In time of temptation, we must come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Certainly we can see, can we not, the urgency of coming to the throne of grace. And yet, there can be doubts and questions that still trouble us as we try to make this personal, as we would apply this to ourselves, as I would apply it to myself, as you would to yourselves, how can we approach this throne? How can we possibly come unto this throne with boldness? Are we not even still miserable sinners? We are totally depraved by nature. And ourselves, are we not worthy only of being cast far from the presence of the thrice holy God? Approach with confidence, with boldness, before the sovereign God of heaven and earth? Dare we appear before Jehovah? the Holy One who is a consuming fire unto all ungodliness? Can we possibly stand before His face? Oh, you may say, I hope you do. We can come to the throne through our great high priest, was passed into the heavens. But even here, can we? Would such a great high priest have an interest in us, such puny creatures, sinful creatures besides? Is he not so transcendent, so highly exalted, that no communication or contact is even possible between him and us? Is he not so, so far above us that it's impossible for him to conceive of our problems and weaknesses and needs and struggles? Could such a great high priest possibly understand the temptations that we face in holding fast? our profession? Is he not the very son of the living God? Is he not far, far away from us, exalted at the right hand of the majesty on high? Dare we go unto him? Beloved, our text gives us a, an amazing encouragement to come to the throne of grace. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Clearly, the divine glory of the exalted Lord Christ does not create some kind of a barrier between him and his people. 
And there is no need for us to imagine that our great high priest will have no feeling, no compassion for us who are poor sinners, conscious of our weaknesses and our infirmities. In fact, the negative form of this statement indicates that the inspired writer has anticipated the objections we might raise concerning the possibility of coming to the throne of grace. The double negative here exactly emphasizes Christ's great sympathy towards us. Literally, we read, for we have not a high priest who is not able to sympathize with our infirmities. This word, to be touched with the feeling of, or to sympathize with, doesn't just express the idea of the compassion of someone who regards suffering from afar, from a great distance away. On the contrary, this word emphasizes the feeling of one who enters into that suffering and makes it his own. Think about it. Our high priest is touched with a feeling of, is able to sympathize with our infirmities. In general, infirmities here refers to our lack of strength, our weaknesses. More specifically, these infirmities refer to weaknesses of both body and soul. We are beset by many kinds of physical sufferings and afflictions, injuries and diseases. Even in our day of so-called scientific and medical wonders, advanced technology again and again, we are made oh so mindful of the infirmities of the flesh. Some of us at the present time are coping with heavy burdens of affliction. And certainly there are heavy burdens of sorrow in this veil of tears. And the infirmities of our soul and spirit are even more besetting than physical afflictions we encounter Our very faith can sometimes be so weak. We're plagued with temptations from within and from without in striving to hold fast our profession. Perhaps sometimes we're even tempted to rebel against God's way with us. We might even be tempted to question his wisdom in his dealings with us. And we have yet our sinful flesh, that old man who is still attracted to the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. But we need not fear or despair. Our high priest endured all our sufferings. He sympathizes with us. He has been touched with the feeling of our infirmities. But that's not all. Our text says more concerning our high priest, notice, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Literally we read, who has been tempted in all respects, in like manner, without sin. He is a tempted high priest. He has also been tempted according to the likeness of our temptations. That is, like as we are tempted in in like manner. In Hebrews chapter 2, 
the concluding verses, 17 and 18, we read this of our high priest. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Notice, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. He suffered being tempted. It's literally true that Christ, the very Son of God in our flesh, was tempted. And our young children, are they know that. They remember, do you not, how Christ, almost immediately after his being baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, There he was sorely tempted. As Scripture mentions three specific grievous temptations by the devil himself. They were very real. They were grievous. Yea, our Lord Jesus was tempted all his life long in every way that we are. That even though he was in all points tempted like as we are, there was one fundamental difference, yet without sin. Christ did not stumble and fall into sin. As the divine human mediator, he could not sin. But our high priest always walked the way of perfect obedience before his father. Yea, he walked all that deep, dark way which led to the cross. For God had decreed that in Christ his everlasting covenant would be realized. But so it is that our high priest knows all our temptations, all our infirmities, He knows all our burdens. He knows all our sufferings. For he experienced it all, but never once sinned. That, beloved, is the high priest we have. What an encouragement. He sympathizes with our infirmities as no earthly high priest ever could. The earthly high priests of Aaron's line had the highest privilege of passing once a year through that inner veil into the Holy of Holies to appear for a few moments before God on behalf of their people. Christ Jesus is our advocate and intercessor with the Father constantly. And he knows, perfectly knows, the great temptations we face as we strive to hold fast our profession. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He knows exactly how we feel. We need never despair. We are never really alone. We are never without someone who truly understands. Let us then, by the grace of God, more and more heed this admonition. Seeing we have such a high priest, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Pray. Pray without ceasing. Live prayerful lives. Be zealous to seek the means of grace. We find in the sanctuary our high priest, our sympathetic high priest, our high priest who suffered being tempted. There we certainly obtain mercy and find grace to help that we may continue to hold fast our profession. 
Oh, we can think back to the days of old, the old dispensation. We need not stand afar off as God's people in the Old Testament times did. They had to remain in the outer court while their high priest functioned briefly in the inner sanctuary. Mind you, they feared to draw near. They remained far outside that drawn curtain that separated them from the holy of holies and from the mercy seat. In fact, they might not enter there upon penalty of death. Only the priest might enter, and that only after he had sanctified himself and came with blood. But we, we may come boldly with fearless freedom to the throne of grace, For that veil of the temple has been rent in twain from the top to the bottom, never to be repaired again. And now the mercy seat is open to our view, and we see Jesus, the captain of our salvation, who was made perfect through sufferings. We see him seated on the throne of grace and mercy, who is the hope set before us, which hope we have as the anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Should we then be afraid? Should we then ever hesitate to come in our need to that throne? Surely not. But let us go freely to him whom we confess in our profession to be our great and merciful high priest who alone has the right to plead our case and who alone can give us the assurance that his plea shall be heard and who promises grace and mercy to help in every time of need. Amen. Most merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, We thank Thee for Thy Word. What comfort it is for us as pilgrims and strangers here beset with manifold temptations day in and day out, young and old alike. We thank Thee for the throne of grace. We thank Thee for our merciful High Priest, Jesus Christ. Grant that we may be a praying people. And wilt thou for Christ's sake ever hearken unto our cry. We ask it with the remission of our sins in Jesus' name. Amen.